Welcome to Monster Chats, presented by Monster VoIP, where we share the tools, methods, and best practices that business leaders use to build new connections, strengthen relationships, and impact sales and organizations of all shapes and sizes. If you have any questions that come up during today's episode, please text them to 424-378-6966. Please welcome the founder of Monster VoIP, your host, Colin Mitchell. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Samantha Edis. Samantha and I are going to be talking about women's empowerment, money, work-life balance, and entrepreneurship. I'm Colin Mitchell, the host of Monster Chats and the founder of Monster Void. As a, as a dedicated champion of women, Sam has devoted her career to advocating and supporting women in the pursuit of their dreams. Thousands of women from C-level leaders to administrative assistants to moms returning to the workforce have benefited from Sam's unique guidance. Sam, welcome to Monster Chats. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. Uh, let's just jump right into your story. Let's I want to learn <laughs> a little bit about you know, where you grew up, what you, you know, life was like growing up, and then when you decided to become an entrepreneur and how you, you know, your journey to being so passionate about empowering women. Yeah, so I grew up in New York City, right literally in Manhattan on the 26th floor of an apartment building, uh, and I was a child athlete, so that, that kind of defined a lot of my childhood um, and I guess a lot of who I am today. Um, I was a competitive tennis player, so from age nine, I never really had a normal childhood. I kind of had a job. Um, so, you know, while other kids were maybe thinking about going out to parties or, you know, what they were going to do on the weekend, I was always thinking ahead to what tournament I had that weekend and how I could win. Um, so that kind of defined, defined my childhood in many ways. And then I, um, went to college and played tennis in college. And then that was what kind of when my, my tennis career ended. But, um, but that was that kind of overshadowed most of the, the childhood, I would say. Mm, so did tennis take up a lot of, I'm assuming it took up, a, I mean, that sort of level of dedication must have took up a lot of your time. Yeah. Now that I'm a parent of three kids, I appreciate what it did for me in so many ways that I don't think I, I understood back then. I mean, there was no time for me to kind of get in trouble or not be, you know, mm. focused on getting my schoolwork done because I had a very, very strict schedule. I was practicing five or six days a week. And then I was playing tournaments every weekend. And then every summer I was traveling to play tournaments. So, um, there was no downtime for, you know, for me to not be structured. And so when I got home from tennis every day at seven or eight, that was when I started my schoolwork and I was at a demanding school and I do three hours of homework. I have like a half hour to talk to my friends on the phone when I was in high school and then it was over. So, um, you know, I missed most parties and I couldn't really go out much. So, um, so it, it, it definitely defines sort of how I organize my life today. It helped me be very disciplined. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, people always say to me, how do you have time to read books? How do you have time to, you know, have a cocktail with a friend? How do you have time to, to, to have fun and also run a company? And, and I've always just been super disciplined. So I feel like if I have an hour and someone else has an hour, I do a lot more with that hour. Mm. Yeah. So it taught you like, like you said, discipline and time management and, and also prioritizing things very early on is what it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. How, have mm -hmm. you been able to really like foster that for your kids as a mother now? Uh, definitely since COVID's hit, um, you know, all bets are off. 
<laughs> There's no longer any structure in my house. Um, I've given up on screen time limits. Instead of kind of, you know, we've always had a philosophy with our parenting that you want to say yes more than you say no. Um, and then when you do say no, it's rare and, and your kids listen to you. And so that's always been our philosophy. So, it, you know, what we've sort of transitioned to during COVID is, you can't say, you know, get off your screen when, when mom and dad have to work all day long. So mm -hmm. instead, what we've done is try to make certain hours of the day, like offer activities, like we're all going for a family bike ride or walk every day. Um, and then, you know, the rest of the time, do what you want and we trust you. Um, I'll, I'll let you know how that little experiment's worked out in, in a year. <laughs> for now, it's keeping everyone somewhat sane. So yeah, you uh, just got to so, keep the peace, right? Exactly, exactly. So That's for really now, good. It's working out okay. <laughs> saying yes more than no is definitely something that I struggle with as a parent. So, and it's something that I always strive to get better at, you know. Um, and then really just even when you say no, like giving them a little bit of an explanation. My kids are young. So even when I find that I, when I do tell them no and explain it to them, like why they are much more receptive to that. I completely agree because it comes from a place of respect. If you, you know, I remember we had a trade show a couple years ago, or I mean, maybe it was my, a book. I was, I had a booth for my book somewhere and it was a kind of a mom event and there were lots of families around and we had a, a jar of lollipops. And as this little boy was so excited to get to go take a lollipop, all you kept hearing his parents say was only one, only one. And the poor kid, like they took all the joy out of it. And so mm. instead of they're like, which one are you going to choose? It would have been a very different scene. Right. So anyway, yeah. good, good thing. All right. So when did you start first start your entrepreneur journey? So, uh, well, I was, I graduated from Harvard business school in 2001. So, okay. um, it was a long time ago. And at the time everyone wanted to go into banking and consulting. Mm -hmm. Um, so at that moment I was the only entrepreneur in my class since then there's tons of people who've take the, taken the entrepreneurial path since, but at the time I was kind of went rogue and I decided to start a company that was focused on personality driven brand. So it was like a personal branding company before people knew what a personal brand was. Now everyone says I'm a little like Starbucks and a little bit like Southwest Airlines. Then nobody knew what a personal brand was. So that was my first um, sort of entrance into entrepreneurialism. And then ever since I've kind of taken my own path. Um, but I, I grew up, you know, I had parents who owned their own companies, so it wasn't foreign to me. I, you know, if you asked earlier how I became so passionate about women and money. I remember when I was about 11 years old, I was in the elevator at my apartment building and we got out of the elevator and my mom said, you know, Mrs. Riles. And I said, of course I've known her since, you know, I was, I was a little baby. And she said, well, she hates her husband but she has no money of her own. So she can never leave him. Never be like Mrs. Riles. Mm. Now that's a pretty powerful story. It's, it's, it's obviously no filter. <laughs> I don't know that I would deliver the story in the same way, but mm. certainly the message sunk in, which was if you don't have your own money, it's hard to have independence and it's hard to have choices. Mm -hmm. And I think ever since I've had that in my mind, um, and also, you know, as, as I've gotten older and seen my friends with kids and those who've stayed in the workforce versus those who have not, you see the options that people have. And sometimes they are in bad relationships for the wrong reasons. And um, it's something for my own children. I hope that they always have their own financial independence and they never have to make choices based on money. Mm. Wow. So at that moment, 
did it really, did it really sink in or is it something you looked at like later or from there on, did you really kind of have that drive to like, Hey, I got to have my own, you know, independence. Well, by the way, there's a garbage truck next to me. I hope that that's not <laughs> interfering with us. Um, so I think that when you have a, a parent who has such a strong feeling about that, it's obviously not the only time she said things like that, right? So, mm. so this, she was always a feminist. She was ahead of her time in many ways, and she owned her own business. And I think that that, that philosophy was just embedded in sort of my par- or the parenting I received. My dad was always a 50 percenter. He was the one who sewed the buttons and cooked dinner every night. And even though he worked full time, he was completely as active as my mom was in parenting. And so cut to now when people will see my situation and they'll say, oh, you're so lucky your husband does lunch boxes or whatever it is. And I'm like, it's not luck. Like I chose who I married. I knew I was getting involved with someone who would do that. And and I would never have chosen someone who wouldn't expect to be helpful at home and to be my partner at home, just like they're my partner in life. And I think that um, it set me up in that way very successfully because I don't think you can reach your potential if you don't have a partner who believes in your success and who is proud of your success and you know willing to do what it takes to help you succeed as much as they are. Mm. Wow. Okay. So now tell me when you started your first business, what was, what was that business? So that business was the personal branding company. And I remember recruiting our first client was this guy named Strauss Zelnick, who at the time he'd been a former CEO of BMG and he was a big, um, he's, he's a big, huge media executive. And I offered to represent him for free just based on commission on his speeches and things like that, just so I could sign a big name and start from there. Um, and so when he signed on, it kind of was like off to the races. There were so many other clients that came on board and, um, you know, you, I think I learned in that business that you have to be able to pivot and make decisions fast. And I've always been able to decide fast. I don't get stuck on a decision. I believe in like, if you fail, fail fast and then move, move, you know, make a new decision, um, rather than deliberating. I don't think that there's any correlation between the time you spend on the decision and the value of that decision. Um, and so I've always just believed in making decisions fast, whether it's a small decision or a big one. Mm-hmm. In, in this case, we really morphed more into a PR firm because that's what people were willing to pay for. And people weren't willing to pay for branding because they, they didn't even understand what personal branding was. Now, now everybody's got a personal now, brand. Yeah, right? I was just an early adapter. Fresh out of, fresh yeah. out of college, no, no um, you know, work experience but they got a personal brand right i mean i'm a big advocate of personal branding and i think that you know a lot of people think like i have to be an expert or i have to be this or i have that you who you are is your brand and i think a lot of people get confused of like trying to create something that they're not as their brand and it's like if you show up as your authentic self and just be you know vocal about that or be public about that's your brand yeah, and I would take it a step further to say that. And the other thing that people make a mistake of is to think oh, only when I'm at work should I focus on my personal brand. Mm. But it has to embody who you are outside of work too, because now that we no longer live in a nine to five world, we are being evaluated based on our social media presence and based on how you behave off hours as well, because there's really are no off and on hours now that technology comes home with us. So 
it, it really requires you to be authentic because you could never keep up a charade 24 hours a day. Yeah, but you exhausting. also want to be careful about what you post online. And it, it isn't mm-hmm. a place to, you know, post about the fight you just had with your mom or the, you know, the, the hangover you have or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Like, Right. That's not what social media is for. And it does then come back to haunt you because it lives online forever. So I do think it's important. So, so anyway, so I did that firm for, for four years. And then while I was um, doing it, I've always kind of been obsessed with spotting talent. And I, there were a lot of experts I wanted to work with, but just they couldn't afford us because they couldn't afford the retainers that we were charging as individuals and companies could, but individuals couldn't. And I was always, you know, when I, I considered it a bad day at work, if I opened the New York Times and read about an expert that I didn't already know about, like that was my thing. I always wanted to know about whether it was a gardening expert, an etiquette expert, or a saving money expert. I always wanted to kind of be on top of who those were. And so I pitched this book idea to an agent and she loved it. And it became the expert's guide to 100 things everyone should know how to do. And it allowed me to work with all the experts that couldn't afford me. So or couldn't, you know, or just weren't in the market for personal branding. So mm-hmm. I cold called a hundred experts and they each wrote a chapter on their area of expertise. So it was Susie Orman on how to save money and Bobby Flay on how to barbecue and um, Barbara Corcoran on how to sell a home and, and so on. Um, wow. And they saw the results of cold calls. And so when that book became a bestseller, I then got another three book deal with Random House and I decided to close my firm um, and I placed my employees and my clients in other places. And then I just decided, okay, I'm just going to focus on the books for a few years. Um, and then I met this guy who you might know named Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. Um, and Gary was an expert in one of my books. And he, at the time, decided he wanted, it's a very brief moment in his history, but he wanted to be the Simon Fuller of the internet. And so he was mm. going to make me into his second media property after Wine Library TV. So he decided to launch a show with me called Obsessed TV, where I was a host of this online talk show. We did 75 episodes and he would come in at the end and have a glass of wine with me and the guest. Um, and so we did that for a couple years. And, uh, and then I kind of went back into what I'd been doing is working with a lot of CEOs and experts focused on women this time and helping them with work-life balance. And that kind of brings us to where we are today. Okay, I want to back up for a second because <laughs> you cold called a hundred experts. How did you land these people to contribute to the book? Like, what was your secret sauce? Because I mean, I'm in sales. I've trained tons of salespeople. Everybody hates cold calling. Yeah, and that's probably something you obviously weren't doing in your regular, you know, line of work. Like, what? What, how, what did you? What did you say to these people when you cold called them? I always felt like the worst thing someone could say is no, and I don't take it personally. So I would rather ask my 10 top people than go to my middle level people and have them say yes. I'd rather ask my 10 top people and get one yes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Barbara Corcoran, who you probably know from Shark Tank, she said no to me the first time I asked her to be in my book. It was, I think it was my third book I asked her to be in, to do how to sell a home faster. She said, I'm so sorry, I'm so busy right now, you know, et cetera. And I said, don't worry about it at all. I'd love to send you a copy of my first book just so you can take a look. She received the copy of my first book. I then sent her a note saying, how do you like the book? And she said, oh, my best friend and I read it all weekend and we loved the book, congratulations. And I said, that's so great. I still would really love to get you in my book. And she said, well, I'm really too busy. As I said, I have this child. And I said, 
Well, I actually have a book called The Expert's Guide to the Baby Year. So why don't I send you a copy of that one? So I sent her a copy of that one. And then I called her again. And I said, and she said, I'm just, I can't get to this in the next couple of months. I'm really too busy. And I said, you know what? I'll make yours the hundredth chapter so I can wait a year. If you have time in the next year to write 500 words, then then, you know, I'll wait for you. And she said, finally, okay, you know, what? I'll just do it. Cause I can't stand talking to you anymore. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> and then I asked her to host my book party and she did, she co-hosted it with Gary Vaynerchuk and two other experts. And she, when she gave her speech to introduce me, she said, I, she's the only person who's pushier than I am. And I took that <laughs> as a giant compliment. <laughs> oh, definitely. How else could you so, take that? Um, yeah. So I had a lot of people like that where they would say no. And I never, I always think no is a slower path to yes. So, and I really believe that, you know, that you can get to anyone and that people just don't aim high enough. Um, and by the way, I'm not proud of it given my politics are pretty out there on the internet. So it's clear I'm not proud of it. But in that first book, I did get Donald Trump to write a chapter on how to negotiate. Um, and getting that guy to do anything for free is a miracle, but he did write the chapter. God knows how, but he wrote it. It was like this short, but we still included it because he was a big name at the time. Now I would not want him in my book, but anyway, he did, you know, he was a big name at the time and still is. of course. So, so persistence, persistence was your secret sauce. Persistence. And you know, today I, I do think that I probably, I'm less understanding of the salespeople on my team of why they have a hard time picking up the phone because I'm like, come on, I picked up the phone to call, you know, Barbara Corcoran, call whoever it is that said no to me. And by the way, I always remember the people that said no, but I would usually go back to them over and over. In fact, there was a woman named Jean Chatsky who I always loved. She used to be the Today Show expert on money. She said no to my first book, no to my second book, and no to my third book. Mm. And when my fifth book came out, which was my last book, it came out four years ago. It was about work-life balance. She called and asked me to be a guest on her podcast. And it was like such a, it was so exciting for me because she had said no to me so many times. But you must have wanted to say no. (laughs) I didn't. I wanted to say yes so I could tell her the story and ask why she said no. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean like just to get back at her. Of course. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think she would have cared as much as I was just excited to be on her show and finally get the approval from her, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so tell me about what you guys are doing today. You're very passionate about empowering women. Tell me some of the things that you guys are working on and how you're doing that. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my last book was called The Pie Life, A Guilt-Free Recipe for Success and Satisfaction. So when that book came out, I went on a very big book tour and I'd always done a lot of public speaking. But in this particular case, I, you know, I spoke at Target and Twitter and Google and General Mills, everywhere you could think of. I went to so many cities and I also spoke at a lot of women's conferences. And the one group of people I was unable to help were the women who left the workforce and wanted to return. Mm-hmm. But most women don't know that if you leave for just two years when you have kids or care for a sick parent, whatever it is, there's less than a 50% chance that you will ever get a full-time position again for the rest of your life. Wow. So what couples do is I call it faulty math because what they do is they'll look at, okay, well, I need to stay home for the next few years and my nanny would cost $50,000 a year and I only get paid 60,000. So I'd rather be the nanny. That's kind of the math people are doing, but the math you should be doing is, okay, we'll only need a full-time nanny or childcare solution for the next five years. And if I compare that to my earning potential for my lifetime, then it's clearly worth it for me to stay in the workforce. And people don't do that math um, because there's not enough out there saying, you know what, this is actually, it's not a noble choice, it's a scary choice financially. So 
find a way to at least work part-time, keep your foot in the door, um, you know, during those years. So anyway, so I, I was unable to help these women who left and wanted to get back in. They were talented. They'd had incredible work, you know, professional backgrounds, well-educated, and they just couldn't find opportunities. And so a lot of them ended up selling skincare and makeup to their friends, kind of like the modern day Avon lady. And there's a lot of companies that are like multi-level marketing companies. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, someone's always left holding the bag at the end because they they kind of prey on these people where they're having them buy more and more inventory and sell it. And most of them, and I looked it up and 98% were losing money. They weren't even breaking even. Wow. And I'd been a keynote speaker at one of their conferences. So I, I appreciated that the appeal of these companies was not just the money. It was the idea of being at work and being part of a community outside of your home. And about 10 years ago, I was at a conference where I had a front row seat to the credit card processing industry, which is an industry most people don't understand, but basically any business from a hair salon to a yoga studio to a dentist's office that accepts credit cards has this middleman mm -hmm. between American Express, MasterCard Visa, and the business. Mm -hmm. And today, the middleman is all white men, basically, you know, 30,000 men. And, and it's, you know, a lot of people who have their background in used car sales for some reason. Um, and it's, it's a really bad industry in terms of honesty. And there's, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of dishonesty for small businesses. They, they're paying too much. They're getting poor service. Mm -hmm. And so it suddenly occurred to me, okay, what if I could train this group of women instead of selling makeup and skincare to their friends, they could sell credit card processing to the local businesses they already have relationships with. They're dentists and pediatrician and, and orthodontist and dermatologist and hair salon. And so I spent 2018 testing it to see if people with no background in financial services could effectively sell this. And based on their success, I raised my first round of capital last June and was able to hire a full-time team of a lot of people from the payments industry. Um, and now we're growing super fast. And so we're raising our seed round now. So it's wow. been um, a whirlwind, but it's been amazing. And I think for me, the most rewarding thing has been seeing all these people whose stories of, you know, I was stuck in some way, whether it was in a full-time job where I was capped at how much I could make, so I need a side hustle, or I was out of the workforce and wanted to get back in. Um, the idea that we can be helping this many people earn recurring revenue has been super rewarding and exciting for me and my team. That is fantastic. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick break just to tell you what we do at Monster Voip. We started Monster Void, frankly, because we were sick and tired of getting gouged on our business phone bills and getting dropped calls all the time. Today, we serve over 6,000 customers. We're passionate about saving businesses money and giving them the features they need in a modern tech stack. You can text INFO to 424-378-6966 to learn more. Sam, it's been incredible learning your story, and I love what you're doing to help these women get back into the workforce, and it sounds like you guys are having a lot of success. Before I let you go, tell people where they can find you online, where they can find out more about what you guys are doing. Sure. So they can go visit us at parkplacepayments.com. That's parkplacepayments.com, just like Monopoly. Um, and merchants can visit us there, or people who want to join our sales force can also um, just sign up to join our family on there. And then they take an online training course, which is a few hours called Park Place Academy. And then we support them in their success. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sam. If you are listening to the podcast, please subscribe, share with your friends, and we're listening for your feedback. The show is all about you. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Monster Chats, presented by Monster Voice. 
where we share the tools, methods, and best practices that business leaders use to build new connections, strengthen relationships, and impact sales in organizations of all shapes and sizes. If you have any questions from today's show and want to reach us directly, please text your question to 424-378-6966.